welcome to Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, Army Ranger, real estate investor, and income enthusiast. On this show, we uncover the keys to attaining financial freedom. There are so many people listening right now who are stuck in that day-to-day, nine-to-five rat race. Luckily, it's only temporary. Each week, we bring on guests that help us discover the steps to build financial freedom, passive income, and generational wealth so we can live the life we were born to live. Money is freedom. Let's get to the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, and today's guest is Anthony Pinto. Anthony is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and is currently an active duty submarine officer. He owns and manages multifamily commercial real estate assets, totaling over 300 units with $30 million assets under management. He is also the host of the Lessons in Real Estate Show podcast, which is, by the way, a pretty awesome podcast. And I'm not just saying that, Anthony, because I've been a guest on it. It is an incredible, awesome podcast. But uh, what's going on, brother? Welcome to Wealth Science. Uh, we're, we're pumped to have you on today. Hey, thanks, Jesse. I really appreciate you, you having me here. You know, it's it's funny when um, when I had you on the show, you know, you were just kind of, you're just kind of getting your, your wheels underneath you and getting going. And I mean, you had some student housing experience and, and all that. But I mean, man, since since the time we recorded your episode, you've done so much. I mean, you started your own podcast. You're just crushing it on social media. So I, I really appreciate you having me on here today because it's it's really an honor to see how far you've come since you know we did our recording. Dude, that's awesome. And it's funny because like I, I tell everybody, like my goal for 2021 to, was to be a guest on one podcast this year. I've been a guest on over a dozen. And like, dude, back in January, I didn't even have the thoughts of like starting my own podcast. Like that was not even in my universe that I think that that was possible. And, and here we are, man. You, I've been on your podcast. You're coming on mine. Uh, yeah, it's crazy what you can accomplish in, in a short period of time. People think that you have to do this for years to start your own podcast. Like, no way. I was, I was on my first one back in May and, and here we are getting ready to launch Wealth Science. That's that's awesome. But uh, just for the audience's situational awareness, Anthony, like for people who don't know who you are, I know your story is incredible. You're investing from overseas, which I think is awesome. Um, just, you know, quick introduction on who you are, where you're from and, and where you're at currently. Sure. Uh, so Anthony Pinto, you said active duty submarine officer. Uh, I currently live in Japan. I've been here for about a year and a half or so. I uh, have another year and a half before we head back to the States. Um, most of my investing has been in multifamily. Started on uh started in 2000 end of 2018 when i got off my uh my first submarine uh the uss albany out of norfolk and um i just kind of realized that uh, i didn't want to stay in the navy for the rest of my life didn't want to make a career um so i started looking for other alternatives uh to supplement my income and um, i knew that i had i knew that i was going to another short tour and that i was going to be coming here and i had another at least three years left uh under my belt before i could get out so uh, long story short, uh, we fell into real estate investing, um, met with a bunch of military guys who were also active duty. They were also doing it. Really good friends of mine still too. And um, I got to, to realize, hey, like this, this is a real thing that you can do while active duty, right? You can invest in real estate. You can buy real estate. And so um, I bought a, my first property was a quad that we bought uh, under my wife's VA loan in Hampton Roads. And when we lived in that for about a year before we came out here. Um, that was a, a killer deal. I mean, 0% down on that and house hacked and essentially lived for free for a year in that. 
Um, right after we closed on that one, we closed on a triplex um, that we held. Actually, we just now sold that for a pretty good profit back in July. Um, and then I just thought like, hey, you know, these smaller deals are taking the same amount of time and, and energy as these larger deals would. So it was like, you know, why, why focus my time in three, you know, one, three, four unit deals when I could go bigger, like 50, 100 units. So I started looking into larger uh, multifamily deals, apartment buildings, and kind of went off on my own for a bit, had had a property under contract, dropped out of contract on it, had a lot of great lessons learned about trying to find partners and, and do, trying to do it all yourself. And we can get into that more if you want. But uh, end of 2019, I uh, knew I was coming out here and um, I knew my ability to to uh, look at deals and be able to go hunt down deals and talk with brokers and be you know boots on the ground. I uh, was going to be really limited being out here in Japan. So I started looking at other things that I could do, which was capital raise and put out content. So I started my own podcast beginning of 2020. And uh, based off of that, I met my uh, one of my business partners who uh, together we closed on about 200 units together in the Hampton Roads area in 2020. Um, and one of the other general partners on our first deal, um, which is actually under contract to be, to be sold now after a year and a half. Um, he brought me in on another deal. So in total, we had three multifamily deals that we closed in, in uh, 2020, all while I was over here, um, and uh, about 300 units total. And so uh, that was 2020. Good, good amount of money coming in off of that. Um, I was looking to get into a real estate investment fund rather than trying to do syndications, which was what we did for the three multifamily units. And um, that unfortunately didn't end up working out. Uh, it was a lot more time and energy and money um, and a headache than ultimately it was worth. Uh, we had a, a lot of, of great lessons learned, expensive lessons learned from that. Um, and ultimately ended up breaking apart that partnership. But uh, since then, you know, I, I took about three months off to just kind of, um, I guess, recenter myself and find myself and, and reevaluate, hey, like what's actually going on with multifamily um, and really real estate as a whole. And uh, if you haven't been living under a, lo uh, under a rock, 2020 and 2021 have just been a tremendous growth in the um, one in the amount of people who are involved in real estate and specifically in multifamily. Two, in the prices of multifamily properties, regardless of the market that you're investing in. And it's just, it's getting to the point that I found that multifamily is just untenable uh, for me as, a, as an investor to find a deal that works as a value add strategy, particularly. Um, so long story short, you know, I got a little disillusioned with multifamily. And so I moved into a new asset class, moved into uh, community shopping centers or, or retail um, is, the, is the overall asset class. And uh, we can get into more details on that if you want. Um, but basically, I found a partner that has almost 30 years of experience in not only multifamily, but also in shopping centers. And, you know, at the company he used to run, he was the president of, they were controlling over $2 billion worth of, of multifamily and, and uh, shopping centers. And so he has a tremendous amount of experience in this. And he just kind of opened my eyes to the opportunity that, that com specifically community shopping centers can offer. And I'm not talking like, you know, large retail malls where you go in and you walk around and there's department stores and stuff. I'm talking like your local shopping centers that you go to, to, you know, go to the food line or go to Kroger or Wegmans or whatever your regional shop, your regional grocery store is, right? Centers that are like in your neighborhood, centers that may be, you know, 10,000, 40,000 square feet, not like a million square feet as uh, some of the bigger centers are. So that's kind of the long and short of uh, of my story. Um, I'm married. My wife is also active duty. She's a nurse out here with me as well. 
Um, and yeah, that's we're just living our best life here in Japan as much as we can, as much as COVID will allow us to. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, so many awesome, uh, you know, notes in there. And I just think it's so incredible how you're literally investing in property, buying cash flowing assets from the other side of the planet. I mean, that alone is is so powerful and and goes to show the power of real estate and the power of building the right teams and partnerships. Like, I'm, I'm curious, like in the beginning there, you know, maybe before 2020 in that 2019 timeframe, what were kind of your main, you know, polls to, you know, real estate and really commercial real estate in general? I mean, people talk about the tax benefits the cash flow. I mean, there the you know aspects of it being a hard asset. Like, I'm curious, you know, what were, what were the primary draws for you when you were kind of figuring out, hey, I'm going to go this direction instead of maybe something like stocks or something different. I'm curious. Yeah. So the so the big draw was for me is you know there's only so many times that you can use a VA loan, right? There's only so many times that you can move into a new property, um, you know, physically move into a new property, right? And there's only so many times that you can do joint ventures um, on smaller properties. And so, you know, if you're going to end up having to raise money, which is what we ended up having to do, right? Um, you know, we didn't have fifty, a hundred thousand, you know, a million dollars to to go buy properties. Um, the the prospect of using OPM or other people's money was really the big draw for commercial real estate, right? Um, you know, you see a lot of people that that borrow money for flips um, or to buy, you know, smaller single family homes, um, and that's great, but you end up getting a lot. Um, I guess worse terms for the hard money lender than you, you would find if you're doing a syndication or or a fund. So that was really the big draw for for me for commercial real estate is the idea that you know I didn't have to wait until I had another fifty thousand built up, right? No matter you know if that takes you know two, three, four years or whatever, we could not only invest in more deals uh, and, and use other people's money for that, but they could also get great returns on the back end from that as well, like. Tax benefits as you know from cost eggs from the well depreciation. I mean, it's just so many different benefits to commercial real estate as a whole, right? Um, you know, the fact that I directly can control the value of the property by the things that I do versus what you're seeing in residential, where you know someone sells a house down the street for two hundred thirty thousand, and your house is the exact same thing. You're going to be very hard pressed to try to sell that property for more than that because it's based off of comps. No matter what you do to that property. Um, give or take, you're pretty much going to sell around the same price. But with a commercial real estate property, I can go and buy a multifamily or retail property or industrial and directly either raise the rent on it or decrease the expenses and directly in- impact the value of that property. And that was huge for me is having the control over my money and having the control over the property over that. Right. Cause you know, I I've been involved in the stock market. I've, I've thrown money in, you know, and uh, had lost some money, made some money, but at the end of the day, like, me as an individual investor, it has no control over what Apple stock is going to do or what Google stock is going to do or fill in the blank, whatever stock or mutual fund or or index fund that you want to invest in, right? Like the only thing I can control is how much money I want to put into it or how much money I want to take out, right? But with commercial real estate, I have so many opportunities to affect the value of that property and so many opportunities to, to make more money off of that property, um, more than just the cash flow, right? The overall value of the property, and even when you go to sell it. So that was really the main draw for me with, with commercial real estate specifically um, was the big control aspect of it. The fact that you know I didn't have to rely on my own income stream to be able to purchase these properties, right? I could offer uh, you know, sweat equity, I could offer finding the deals, I could offer a numerous amount of different opportunities to, uh, to take down these deals rather than just having to bring capital. So does, does that answer your question? I don't, 
Like I got away from it originally. <laughs> no, I, you hit so many awesome things. And I, I think what people kind of just a caveat, I think what people underestimate and you talked about it was the aspect of this, like being a real hard asset that I can physically like go up and, and have direct control over where we're in the stock market. I mean, you hit on it. You have no idea what Apple's going to do. You have no idea what Bitcoin or cryptocurrency is going to happen. I mean, people underestimate how powerful it is investing in a hard asset that you can drive to, you know, whatever ABC Avenue and, and go to and improve and, and fix and make it a better place. Um, it's so powerful in, in the scale. And, and just, you know, the other thing with the power of scale of commercial real estate, you know, we went from a couple college houses to 141 unit mobile home park in one deal. And it just goes to show the power of, of multifamily scale, dude, and why um, it's it's such an amazing and multifamily syndication. Like I'm I'm curious, and again, and kind of those beginnings, maybe 2019 to 2020 timeframe, and obviously like you're moving overseas to Japan. What were some of the primary challenges facing you know you as kind of a beginning investor, and how did you overcome them? And like I'm sure a big piece of this conversation too is like building out the correct partnerships um, to support those challenges. So I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, so I would I would say two things. I would say one, the partnership, like you mentioned, but also uh, digging the well before you need it. So um, I'll, I'll start with that that latter one first. So you know, one of the things that if you're going to be doing a syndication and not using your own money is obviously you have to raise capital for that, right? Um, and no one's going to know that you have deals or want to invest with you if they don't know that you're looking for investors, right? Or that you have deals. So one of the first things I learned uh, when I was getting into multifamily is, hey, you need to be able to present yourself out there and let people know that, hey, this is, you have deals that you have coming down the line that you know people might be interested interested in. Um, so I got a website together, I got a sample deal package together, and I said, hey, this is a this is an actual. Once we actually close on our first deal, this is an actual deal that we have done, and these are the returns that we you know projected, and this is the overall business plan, right? And so I had that on my on my website so people could see you know, right away. And it was also a good lead funnel as well. Um, what we we're involved in, the types of deals we were in, the markets that we were in, the returns that could be, you know, projected or expected, um, you know, the, the tax benefits that they could receive, all of that kind of in one package, right? So, you know, I started reaching out to a lot of people when I was in that capital raising phase, even before we had a deal and said, you know, hey, this is what I'm involved in. Um, a lot of it came down to education for people, and because a lot of people didn't really know that, hey, you know, I can take twenty five, fifty thousand dollars and invest it passively in a, you know, a large commercial property. Like a lot of people just didn't know that in the syndication format. Um, and so, a lot of it was education. A lot of it was just putting the word out there. And um, so, you know, off of the a lot of the sweat equity that I put into the initial digging of the well to get, you know, my investors initially primed and ready to go, I was able to raise about um, 800,000 uh, with on the first deal that we had. Um, and so that was in March of 2020. That would be the big, first big challenge that I had to overcome is, is who am I to be able to, to have people invest with me? And I think this is true in anything new that you start, whether that's a podcast, whether that's raising capital, whether that's getting into new asset class. Is who who am I and, and who what authority do I have to be able to have people entrust their capital with me or have people entrust their time with me as a podcast host? And a lot of it comes down to it's not really about you. You know, people if people you know are coming to you to invest with you, they obviously trust you, right? But ultimately, it's once you start getting outside of your your friends and family pool, it's ultimately not about you. It's about what you can bring to the table and how you're leveraging other people on your team, right? 
So for example, um, on this retail deal that we're involved with, you know, this is my first retail deal that I, I personally have ever done, but I'm leveraging a guy's, you know, one of my partner's experience, who has been doing this for 30 years, right? Who knows how to look at these deals, who knows how to look at the leases, who knows how to, you know, to adjust these different factors to ultimately make the property uh, overall better. Um, so if people were just looking at me as a retail investor, well, they probably wouldn't have a lot of confidence in that fact. But as a team together, we're leveraging each other's experience and each other's, you know, capital raising and each other's, you know, ability to find deals and all of these different aspects to make one cohesive team. And so, you know, investors aren't looking at the individual, they're looking at the team and how the team works together. And I think that's, that's huge to think about when you're first getting into, uh, into capital raising is it's, it's not necessarily about you. It's about the team and how much you know the experience the team has overall, um, and how much trust they have. So that brings me into the partnership side of thing. And you know, I think more than um, building your website, more than having a sample deal package, more than even having a deal in the first place, is the partnerships that you build because you know they are almost more um, tenable or or more um, permanent than a marriage is. Right. In some regards, I mean, you're essentially marrying yourself to an individual through a deal for potentially many, many years. Right. So when you get into business with something, you have to realize that, you know, if you don't bet the person at the at the start, if you don't realize, hey, that this person is not it doesn't share the same principles as me. It doesn't share the same ideals or, you know, is doing shady shit. I'm um, sorry, shady stuff. Then, you know, and you find that down the road it's a lot harder to get out of a partnership. Um, than at the start when you first figure it out. So I would say when you're when you're trying to figure out if someone wants to be your partner, or if you want to have that this person as your partner, think about it less as what gaps do they fill in in my experience or money or or time or whatever, right? What how do they complement me? And more of do we share the same principles? Do we share the same values? Is this ultimately a person that I Think about it as, as someone I want to live with, right? Someone that I'm, I'm going to be married to, someone that I could stand to talk to every day for years on end, right? That's really what ultimately matters, right? Because there's always someone who has money. There's always someone who find who can find deals. There's always someone who is boots on the ground for you, right? But they may not always share the same values and the same principles and the same you know, you know thought process as you. And so I, uh, you know, I've personally experienced where I've um, haven't. I've, I've found that I've, I've kind of tagged on to, you know, people that were, um, that I was, I was looking to have them fill a gap that I was missing. Right. And that first partner was, Hey, he was boosting the ground. He had experience in multifamily. Right. Um, you know, he had, he had name recognition within that market. Um, and, and less was, and I had focused less on, Hey, does this person actually jive with, with me as a person? Right. Um, does this person actually jive with what my business plan is and who who I want to have in my inner circle? Um, so it's kind of a, a subtle nuance, but I would say that focus less on can this person fill a gap for me and and more on does this person align with who I am as a person? And can I stand seeing them for for you know multiple years and having to interact with them? So that's what I say about partners. Yeah. I mean, so many awesome things. I mean, digging the well before you need, it's so crucial. And it's like, I see it all the time with investors out there, or capital raisers, like, Hey, we got this deal, you know, let's start raising capital. And it's like, Hey dude, you gotta like, you need to start raising capital like yesterday. 
Um, you know, I, I just think that's such an important thing. And I, I want to say you interviewed, I, I think it was Bill Allen on your uh, podcast. That is an awesome capital raising episode. Like I recommend everybody check it out, but he, he talks about this there where it's like, Hey, you got to start raising capital before you need it. That's the big, that's one of the major challenges that new syndicators face is breaking out of that secret identity and, and exploring their network, um, to raise capital. And then, and then your piece on the partnerships, I mean, I, I'm in a partnership right now with my family and and that's a difficult, you know, piece to maneuver as well. I mean, that has its own level of complexity to it. Um, maybe, you know, we're not so nervous about each other stealing from each other or anything like that, but it's like easy to get on your family members and, and frustrating at times. But I love that uh, connection that you had. It's like being married to someone. It's like people don't understand, like you're legally in a binding contract with this person for possibly most likely years on end. Like you need to make sure that this is the right fit for the team. So I, I love how you, how you worded that and scripted that. That's so powerful. I'm, I'm curious now as we're kind of like segueing into like this retail part and I've got so many like awesome questions for this. And, and, and you mentioned how like powerful this mentor is and how he's been doing this for multiple decades um, and, and stuff like that. Like, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, what was the initial peak for you with, with retail and, and shopping centers and stuff like that? Like when I look at the post COVID world, Anthony, like, I'm not going to lie, like retail freaks me out a little bit. Like it got hit pretty hard. So I'm, I'm totally excited for you to kind of like pick your brain and, and what are your general thoughts on the retail space and how to kind of spark your interest? Yeah. So, so great question. And, and to your point about, uh, people being scared about retail. I mean, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, if you look at what's happening with shopping, you know, large shopping malls uh, over the past few years, really over the past couple of decades, like they're shutting down left and right, right? People are more are moving towards e-commerce as their main, um, I guess, mode of, of purchasing retail specific products, right? Um, and so because of that kind of herd mentality away from retail, it, it provides a unique opportunity to have very little competition in a market and on properties that are very much viable right now. And, you know, and I, I don't like to use the, the word retail because it immediately pops an image to your head of, of what we just talked about, right? Um, what I like to talk about is more of, of specifically community shopping centers. And there's kind of a, a, a distinct description and, and why I, I try to, di- to differentiate between those two. So, you know, there, there are your traditional retail shopping mall, I guess, if you want to call it that is like your big department stores, like Macy's Sears, um, you know, you go and you walk around for hours and hours and hours. Right. Um, you know, they're just, they're gigantic, right. Those are what you typically ex- expect to be retail. And those have done f- very poorly over the past few years, but you know, within that niche of retail, there are local centers that provide service, um, specific type of businesses, uh, convenience aspects to it, necessity, experiential. I mean, there's a lot of different aspects outside of specifically retail that these smaller centers offer. Um, and so there's actually very few retailers in these, in these centers that we're looking at, right? Um, and, and not only that, but these centers are, are typically smaller. We're looking at centers that are about 10 to 50,000 square foot. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're kind of in the sweet spot between where the smaller you know, investors don't really want to get into shopping centers. They don't really know how to get into it. They don't know how to look at the leases or evaluate them. And these institutional investors who are dropping, you know, tens and of millions of dollars, it's too small for them, right? They're looking for a grocery center, uh, centered um, or anchored properties, right? Um, and so in between that, there's a lot of these properties that, you know, have been doing very, very well, even through COVID, right? I mean, 
people still need to go get their hair done. So people, you know, people still want to go get their nails. Done. People still need to go um, and, uh, you know, get their coffee at, at coffee shops, right? People still need to go eat, right? So there's a lot of these businesses that are, that are in these specific types of shopping centers that are essential businesses, right? They're businesses that stayed open throughout COVID. And so if you, if you break down retail specific type of, of um, uh, industries that are, uh, how I like to describe it is you walk out holding a bag, right? Um, those types of retail spots, they've d- they did very poorly during COVID and, and even before COVID. But if you look at the types of, of businesses that we focus on, the type of like service oriented type of centers, they did quite well throughout COVID and actually had about a 10% increase year over year from 2019 to 2020. Because that's what people were focusing on, right? When people were going out, they were focusing on only these types of industries, right? Um, and so, I mean, there's a lot of different um, types of cent- uh, types of uses that you can get out of these community shopping centers outside of, of you know, your barbers, you have hair salons, I mean, ice cream places, uh, coffee shops, right? Things that people need to go do. I mean, medical medical offices alone are also considered out of that as well. So there's a very distinct difference between retail um I guess as a as an asset class, and what we're dealing with here is community shopping centers, um, and and more of e-commerce resistant essential businesses. Yeah, I mean that's awesome, and it's funny. Like just to prepare for this interview today, I read an article, and you're gonna laugh, but it was titled "Amazon Will Be the Death of the Retail Store," and it was I forget what website it was on, but I was just trying to like deep dive retail, but I'm calling it the wrong thing. Really, what we were referring to is is shopping centers where it needs these. Um, these assets that aren't sold on Amazon or in Walmart and stuff like that, what people have to physically go to, um, to, to buy. So I, I think that's incredible. I mean, I'm curious with this deal you're working on right now. Um, I mean, I assume this is a syndication, you know, what, what are the, what are the type of return structure? What's the comparison to multifamily and stuff like that? I mean, if someone were to invest in this deal, like I'm curious what that looks like for a uh, shopping center. You know, just by the nature of multifamily and the uh, um, interest that's in multifamily, the cap rates are, are very low. I mean, depending on the markets you're looking in, you're looking at cap rates between four to six percent, and that's honestly that's probably too high. I mean, I'm, uh, we were looking at deals even back in 2020 that were good deals that were selling at like a five and a half cap. Um, that were not like they weren't like high class types of properties. I mean, these are class C, class D types of properties that are that are selling at a five and a half cap. And that's only gone up from here. I mean, the the prop the prop the first property that we bought, the 104 unit Marina Point that we're selling now, um, it's it's being sold for, or at least it's under contract for a price that is higher than what our three year performa uh, price was. And we're at year you know we're at a, a year and a half in on this property. So um, you know, needless to say, if you like again, if you haven't if you haven't been living under a rock. Multifamily has a lot of money being poured into it, and the cap rates are definitely reflecting that. So that being said, you know it's it's hard to find a deal that that um, makes sense based off of cap rates alone. Um, and so, you know, people are throwing insane amounts of money at these deals. Institutional investors are looking to to pour money into these deals because they pretty much you know sat on the sidelines in 2020. So, you know, the competition, the cap rates alone make it very difficult to get into multifamily. So how does that compare to to retail? Well, the properties that we're looking at are, you know, just based off the herd mentality, there's just not a lot of competition in them. There's not a lot of competition because people just, one, don't understand retail and don't know how to evaluate it, and two, are are frankly scared about it, right? And so it just gives us an opportunity to uh, uh, have a lot less competition, which means that the cap rates reflect that as well. 
So if, if you kind of want to get into the quick and dirty on what a cap rate um, ultimately reflects, it reflects the, the relative risk that's associated with the property, right? So, you know, that's why you're seeing, you know, New York, San Francisco, these, these larger markets where people are you know, paying one, two, 3% cap rates uh, is because there's relatively little risk in those types of properties uh, and within those markets, because there's always going to be someone who wants to buy, always going to be someone who's going to be living there, right? There's only limited amount of space to, uh, to, to be able to provide multifamily, specifically multifamily types of properties. So, so the lower the cap rate, the, the relatively lower risk you're going to find. So, you know, opposite of that is the higher the cap rate, the higher relative risk you're going to find. And so we're finding, you know, retail centers that we're looking at, these community shopping centers are selling at a seven, eight, nine cap, sometimes even higher than that, depending on the market that you're dealing in. So, you know, you're looking at an eight cap right off the bat, right? That's an unleveraged 8% cap rate on that. So if you add in leverage on that, you know, man, I mean, even if you didn't do anything to the property, even if you just bought the property and let it let it go at at the way it is, I mean, we're we're looking at eight, 10, 12%, you know, returned on doing nothing. Like we underwrote this to do nothing for the first like two, three years. And it's making an incredible amount of returns just off of the cap rate alone, right? And it's just this is not like a one-off deal. Like these deals are like all over the place. It's just you just need to know how to how to one, you need to know how to evaluate them and know what makes a good property and what makes a bad property. And you need to be able to be able to get the, the right financing for it as well. So, you know, the herd mentality is away from retail, sure, as investors, but it's also a lender mentality as well. And so it's, you know, the relative risk is higher because you also have to deal with finding lenders that actually make sense, right? Um, that actually understand your business plan and what you're trying to do. Finding investors to, you know, you know actually invest in these types of properties. And, but I mean, man, like it's, you're getting less regulation overall versus multifamily, right? I mean, you don't have anyone walking around with cancel rent signs outside the shopping center. <laughs> eviction right? moratorium or anything. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, even with eviction, even if you don't have someone pay, like you just lock up the store <laughs> like the next day. I mean, that's it. Like there's, there's no having to go to a court. There's nothing like that. Right. You're dealing with businesses that make money, right. That are, are well-established. Right. So you know, this, the shopping center that we're looking at, we've had half of the tenants have been in there for 10 years or greater, right? So clearly they have a pretty sustained uh, success rate um, uh, within within that particular shopping center. Um, and, you know, in, in these leases that we're dealing with with retail are much longer than you're finding with multifamily, right? Um, you know, with multifamily, you're looking at month to month is probably about the smallest that you're going to find. And about a year is about as long as you'll typically find for a larger apartment complex, maybe longer if you have a longer term tenant in there and you, you know, you know them well and you want to extend them for, you know, two or three years. But that's about as long as you're going to find. And so, you know, every every year, every month, you're going to have someone come down the line that's going to have to renew or that's going to have to move out. And, you know, the turnover costs on a lot of these multifamily properties is so high depending on the property that you're dealing with, the type of class of property, where, where the property is located, right? So, you know, on a $800, let's, let's just throw out some numbers on a $800 per month unit. Um, and the turnover cost on that may be upwards of two grand to replace carpets, to repaint, to, to turn it over. And not only that, but you're also having to factor in that it's going to take probably a week or two to actually turn that unit to get it back onto the market, right? Um, and so it's just, it's a lot of extra costs that go into that. But with retail, a lot of those costs are put onto the tenants themselves, right? So, you know, you about two, 
two or three months before you have a property that goes vacant or you have a, you know, a, a unit or a tenant that wants to renew, you're having that conversation. So you can get the ball rolling and trying to find someone to replace that. Right. Um, and even with multifamily, you know, you can't really do that until the tenant's actually out. Right. So you have a lot longer lead to be able to find tenants to replace your current tenants. Um, if you don't end up wanting to, to renew them. Right. But even so the turnover costs are, are very low, right. On a triple net lease shopping center, like what we're dealing with here, you're really only responsible for the exteriors of the building and, you know, some utilities in, in, in regards to like the common area lighting and parking lot lighting and trash and, and stuff like that. Right. So, I mean, you're looking at expense ratios that are maybe 25 to 30% of your overall income where multifamily, you know, you're looking at anywhere from 33 to 50% of your, of your expenses um, or of your, uh, incomes coming out of expenses. And not only that, but with triple net lease, you're being, you're able to, to essentially recover all of those expenses and put them back on the, on the tenants themselves. So for example, right now we're running at about a 70% recovery rate right now um, on the, on the current property we have on a contract, but you know, in three years time, we're pushing that up to 92%. So 92% of our expenses are going to be paid back by the tenants themselves. So if that gets up to 100%, we're pretty much having 100% of our income, including the recoveries, going straight towards the NOI, which is incredible. And, and you're, dealing, you're dealing with tenants that pretty much just run themselves, right? So you're not dealing with toilets that break. You're not dealing with lights that are out inside. That's all on the tenants to fix themselves, right? Well, obviously, anything exterior to that is, is on the landlord. But you know the tenants put the cost in themselves when you have a new tenant that comes to lease. They're going and putting the cost to renovate the unit to get it up to where it needs to be, right? Um, you know, the new tenant that comes in after that other tenant does the same thing, right? So you're putting very little work and energy and time and money into these properties um, that ultimately just kind of run themselves, right? It's very easy management compared to what you're seeing with multifamily and ultimately a lot better returns. I mean, it's just, I, I, I wish I could show you the numbers on this deal. It's freaking insane, dude. Like it's, it's, it's crazy. The yields that we're seeing on a conservative underwriting and you're just, it's just so difficult to find that in multifamily, at, at least in my experience, it's so difficult to find that in multifamily right now. Um, just because of how much money is being able is th being thrown around right now. And, and the amount of risk that people are taking on just to get deals under contract. I mean, going hard on $100,000 on day one is crazy to me, right? Having, ha it's, it's crazy to me, but people are having to do that just to get a, a property under contract or even just to be competitive. So, you know, there's just a lot of great, great things about shopping centers right now that, you know, specific community shopping centers that it just, it makes so much sense uh, for me specifically um, to, to begin, be able to get into these types of uh, types of assets. So um, that's kind of my, my spiel overall on, on shopping centers. Do you have any more specific questions on it? I mean, I want to go buy a shopping center right now, dude, from what you're saying right <laughs> there. That is, that is awesome. And I love when you talk about the, the difference in the levels of competition too, because even, you know, looking at how we got into the mobile home park space, like we got there because there's less competition because there is so much competition in multifamily apartments. Um, and I, I totally agree with your thoughts on risk too. I mean, it's so powerful. It's like, you know, some of these syndicators out there to meet, you know, their returns for their investors, they have to, you know, jump over the moon. Some of these need to go, you know, the rents need to go through the roof. They need, they've got to implement so many action plans, but here you are, you know, underwriting some of these, uh, you know, these retail centers and expecting to do absolutely nothing. 
for the first 36 months and getting these returns, like this is unreal. I had, I had no idea that there were, there were people out there buying these, uh, these shopping centers. So I, I just think that's so awesome. And it's incredible when looking at the difference in the risk. It, I mean, to me, it's a no brainer. Um, I just had one last question before we get ready to wrap up here. And you've, and you've already talked about it a lot, but you know, when looking at kind of obviously multifamily has a big, and you talked about the value add play and how risk goes into that. I mean, I assume with these shopping centers, the triple net lease, you have built in rent increases and stuff like that. I mean, is there any other way I'm curious to like improve the value of the property besides just that, like automatic rent increase every so years through the triple net or, or anything like that? Like, I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, and that's one of the things I was actually talking with a investor about this morning is, you know, there's there's only so many different ways that you can improve a multifamily property, right? And a lot of it comes down to raising the rents or adding some sort of fee fee structure to to the existing property, right? Like laundry fees or pet fees or or whatever else, right? Um, outside of that, it's really decreasing expenses, and that only goes so far. Right, um, you're not you're not typically having to pay the uh, um, your uh, multifamily tenants pay back you know utilities. Although that that is becoming a lot more common, but it's also dependent on the state you live in if it's even legal to to do that. So so there's a number of different ways that we can ultimately raise NOI on a shopping center. I mean, you can take an existing property or existing tenant and and renew them at a higher market rent, right? Um, you can extend out a lease for a lot longer. You can have options that they can um, you renew at a certain rate, you know, over and over again. I mean, you can set the the uh, increases to the rent to be three percent, four percent, five percent per year. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do. You can take out a, an old tenant that's now not paying a lot of rent, and 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 so, for example, one of the pro- one of the um, units that we're looking at right now is takes up eight thousand square feet. And, but it, you can tell it's previously was split into four or five different different spots. So the thought is, is okay, we can take that 8,000 square feet that's selling for about a third of what market rent is right now, or that's renting for about a third of market rent, and split that up into you know five different tenants, two different tenants, each 4,000 square feet, bump that up to you know up from $7 per square foot, which is what it is now, to $14, $17, $18, dollars per square foot, right? Um, you can do beautification of the, of the property itself. You can add in uh, new pad sites. So if you're looking at a shopping center, you have a lot of parking and you don't need a lot of parking, you can put a building there and have a ground lease for it so that you can essentially just say, hey, here's a bill, here's a spot, we'll sell it to you for X amount of money and somebody just, just build something there, right? Or you can add in extra spots for extra businesses to be. I mean, you can add in drive-throughs for... Um, for like a, a Starbucks or like a, a, you know, a restaurant or something like that. I mean, there's just a ton of different opportunities to, to increase the income on a property like this um, outside of just raising rents, right. Or raising up to, to market rent. It's just, I mean, even, even the triple net recoveries alone is huge. I mean, just think about the fact of going from having a 70% recovery rate to, you know, almost hundred percent recovery rate and having all those expenses pushed back onto the tenants that's like insane. Like that's, that's, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that you can have all the income coming in be purely going towards, you know, cash flow or going towards the value of the property. Um, and that's just kind of the, the, the surface level look at these shopping centers. I mean, there's so many different things you can do outside of that in terms of how you structure the leases, how long the leases are, who you have working and what types of tenants you have in these spaces. It's just, there's so much more 
more freedom to be creative when it comes to to structuring these deals to ultimately raise the NOI more so than I found with any other asset class. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I love, I mean, all the notes you're hitting are super important. And and we were looking at a deal not too long ago of a of a smaller than what you guys are looking at, but it was a a strip mall. I think it was right around eight or nine thousand square feet, but there was a lot of dead space. Um, within that eight or 9,000 square feet. And we're like, hey, maybe we can repurpose this um, and utilize it for something else. And it's very similar to what you're discussing right now. So that's that's super interesting. There's so many aspects other than just raising the rents to increase the value of the property. So I was, I was super intrigued by that. But as we get ready to wrap up here, I've just got a couple more questions for you, not necessarily real estate related, um, but I'm just curious to get your thoughts on as we get ready to close up. Um, obviously, you're investing from the other side of the world. I mean, this journey and this this uh, experience is so incredible, and in how you've been able to do this. You know, how important has mindset kind of played into your role in 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 this whole process? I mean, of managing and owning all these properties from the other side of the world. I'm I'm curious. You know, what what exact mindset? I mean, do you wake up with every day? What what are your thoughts on having the right mindset and, and stuff like that? Yeah. So, you know, I'm 13 hours ahead right right now for daylight savings time. I'm 13 hours ahead of East Coast time, right? And I'm, uh, let's see, 15 hours ahead of West Coast time, right? So a lot of a lot of my time that people are way back in the States, um, I'm asleep. So, you know, that alone makes it very difficult to try to talk to investors, to try to talk to brokers, to try to do all that. So I specifically set aside time between 5 and 7 a.m. every morning to be able to have these calls with people, right, that who are up at, at um, a reasonable hour back in the States. So, you know, that was huge is just setting aside specific time to to work on, um, you know, the business itself, to call investors, to talk with brokers, to, you know, to do whatever. Um, but, you know, the mindset, I mean, the mindset has been huge, right, you know, in in what I, what I constantly think about this is like, like, why am I doing this? Like, why, like, why am I putting myself through all this? Why do I have to wake up at, you know, four 30 every day on a weekday to do two hours of work and then go to my actual W2 for another eight hours. Um, but you know, it comes down to is like, you know, if not me, then who, right? Like no one else is going to build my financial freedom for me. No one else is going to build this, this, you know, this empire for me. No one else is going to, you're going to do the investing for me, right? Like, unless I do it myself. Um, and that's been huge for me is, is when I get down to myself, I'm like, you know, what's the point in doing all this is like, it's because I'm building a better future for me and my wife and my, you know, my future children and my family. Um, and that's really what keeps me, keeps me going through all this. Like it's, it's, it is not easy. I'll tell you that it's not easy to, to get up at four 30 every night when you go to bed at like 10 30 after you get, you know, done talking with people. Um, but it ultimately makes it worth it with the partners that you, that you work with and, and having that, that ultimate purpose of what, what pushes you. Um, and that for me, is just, you know, I, no one else is going to do the work for me unless I put in the time and the energy into it. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that. And I, I mean, we, we are so aligned you and I, where it's like, Hey, all this hard work up front here is it's going to pay off in the future when we're financially free and not restricted to this W2, um, you know, job and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, you and I are so aligned. Uh, I'm curious. And and when I look at my own real estate investing journey, it's like, you know, what is my why and, and what problems am I trying to solve? And, and we're really fixated on solving the affordable housing crisis in this country. And that's, what's kind of pushed us into the mobile home park space is like this belief that everyone deserves, you know, a safe, clean, secure place to live. Like, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts, Anthony. I mean, if you could solve any problem in the world, what would you solve? Oh man, that's a big one. Solve <laughs> any problem in the world. You know, some. Um, I had a, a guest on my podcast um, 
gosh, a couple months ago, I think his, his podcast just dropped like last week or two weeks ago. His name's John Marslek, or sorry, James Marslek. And um, he is dealing with a very similar situation, but it's more specific than that. Instead of a, a, the housing crisis, he's dealing with a housing crisis specifically for military families. And since COVID has happened, um, you know, housing prices and single family homes and smaller multifamily have been just as crazy as they, as they have been in multifamily. So, you know, typical military guys have to move, you know, every so often, right? You, you only have, you know, two or three year orders before you have to PCS somewhere else. And so you got to have to live somewhere and there's only so much housing available on, on base to be able to live. So, you know, a lot of these guys are, are PCSing around the country and they're just not, they're not able to find somewhere to live. Right. Um, so they're living at a hotel, depending on a, a ton of money to be able to try to find these deals and try to bid on these deals and ultimately not be successful. So, you know, he's, he's working on a project that um, essentially solves that and, and buy single family homes and, you know, smaller multifamily and apartment buildings to house these military, you know, active duty guys who are traveling on the world on orders um, and provide them housing, right. And, and at competitive rates, right. And instead of having to compete you know, to put $30,000 over to be competitive on, on an offer on a property. So, so I think that's a really good, um, I guess, problem that I would love to get solved is, is how do we solve the specifically the active duty military housing crisis that's happening really around the country right now. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. I know you have the awesome podcast. I mean, the lessons in real estate show that's fixated on like helping active duty uh, military members solve this exact problem. And dude, I've been in this exact situation. I've gotten to a post before and it's like, Hey, there's nowhere to live on post. And it's like, well, what's my off post living option. It's like, I, I have no clue where to go from here, but I, I think that's an awesome and it's a real problem. And, and people underestimate that, especially uh, for military people out there. The the very last question I wanted to hit you with, dude, I mean, whether it's, whether it's going on, right now it's it's next year it's five years ten years from now whatever it is man anthony pinto is living the perfect life what does it look like oh man perfect life um i would have we would have a couple kids my wife and i um we would be back in the states uh and we would travel once a quarter to wherever we want right no restrictions on having to take leave no restrictions how much money we had to spend on it we just get to travel wherever we want um nearby to family and have have a lot of pets that's one thing I've really missed about being here in Japan is like we had to leave our dog behind and uh, well, we left her with our, our my, um, my in-laws, but we just miss having a pet and having pets around. And, you know, I grew up with a dog and, and we have pretty much have had, uh, you know, pets um, since we got married. So that's, that would be big for me is to have, have pets again. And um, yeah, man, to travel, see the world, you know, raise my children in, in an environment where, you know, they're learning about, financial freedom and what it means to be an entrepreneur right off the bat. Um, and, and not being as, as driven to do well in, in school as I was, I would say that, um, I think that definitely had a huge impact on where I am now, but also on my mental health overall is the schooling that I had for, you know, six, essentially 16 years. So, um, that would be my perfect life, but that, I guess that's something that's just, it's going to kind of have to come as it comes. Right. I mean, I, I would if you really want to get down to it, I'm kind of living my perfect life now because really the only thing that matters is is now is this moment, right? Like 10 years from now may not come, you know, five years from now may not come, a year may and then now may not come, right? Um, may not even live through the weekend. So this is really the perfect life I'm living now is is being here in Japan, living with my life or with my wife, getting to travel as much as we can. Like this, I'm living the perfect life, right? Because there's no guarantee that the future is going to happen. 
right? The only thing we have now is the present. Dude, I love that. That was awesome, dude. Hands down, best best response so far on wealth science on the perfect life question, dude. That that was awesome. Yeah, I mean, I I have no rebuttal to that, dude. It was a home run all the way. I hey, two two things I'll end on, dude. I want to go buy a a retail shopping center right now. Just from talking to you today, that this is this is really cool. It's I'm pumped to see you in the space and how you know it's going to evolve over the next few months. I mean, people who want to learn more about you, Anthony, are interested in this deal or or just want to hear more about you, dude. Where, where are you on social media and how can people get with you? Yeah. So I'm on Facebook. I'm on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, my LinkedIn is Anthony, Anthony shopping center or Anthony Pinto shopping center investor. So you can look me up there. Um, I, we have a website guidepost investment group. Um, it's currently being, um, being published, but uh, by the time this, this episode uh, launches, it should be ready to go. So you can find out more about us there. You can sign up for our investor portal and, and get all, you know, get access to all the deals that we, we have coming down the line. Um, you can also reach out to me at uh, Anthony at guidepostinvestmentgroup.com. Um, and if you uh, shoot me an email, there's a calendar link that you can uh, use to sign up to set up a call or to get, you know, learn more about me or whatever. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm pretty open in the uh, afternoon time on the East Coast on the weekdays. So feel free to, to drop me an email or check out the website or hit me up on, on social media. Pretty responsive on, on any of those methods. Awesome, man. I'm, I'm pumped. You took the time to come on today. I think this show is going to add, this episode is going to add so much value to people out there. Just how your career has progressed from multifamily now into the uh, commercial shopping center space. This is such a cool story. It was awesome to hear about this asset class and so many positives out there. I can't wait to see this grow more, dude. And I just can't thank you enough for coming on today, dude. So much value added. And that's what matters. Absolutely. Yeah, no, this has been great. You know, it, Jesse, it's been a while since I've I've done a personally done a podcast as a guest before. So it's a little refreshing not to have to be the host, I will say. Um, so I appreciate you having me on here. And uh yeah, I look forward to to catching up one with you. And dude, I'm really excited to see what what the next, you know, three, four, ten months, another year is gonna look like for you. Cause it's look how much you've done in in 10 months. Just imagine what another year is gonna look like for you. <laughs> I'm excited to see that journey. Yeah. Thanks, brother. And part of it was due to you. Again, everything that you've done in the networking and stuff like that has been powerful to my journey. It just comes back to to giving more than you receive and, and adding value to other people. And, and it truly does come full circle and comes back to you, dude. And this episode is proof of that. So Anthony, I appreciate you again for taking time to come on Wealth Science, brother. I, I appreciate everything you do for the community and, and your podcast. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Absolutely, man. Take care. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Wealth Science Podcast. Take some time to subscribe and leave us a review. It really is the basis that helps us continue to bring on amazing guests each week. We have another incredible story to share next week, and I'm certain it's going to add value to this community. Please do not hesitate to reach out if there's anything I can do to help you in your journey of attaining financial freedom. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.